Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Peter C. Goldmark and Michael Lerner. Peter Goldmark, welcome to the New School. Thank you. We've been friends for many years, and I've followed your trajectory with great interest. Um, You've been a leader in government, philanthropy, news organizations, and environmental organizations. Uh, You retired in 2010 as director of the Environmental Defense Fund's Climate and Air Program. And prior to that, you served as chairman and CEO of the International Herald Tribune, president of the Rockefeller Foundation, executive director of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, budget director of the state of New York, and Secretary of Human Services of Massachusetts. And that's actually a considerable understatement uh, of the number of uh, things you've done. Uh, But um, one might uh, conclude from that that um, your profile in the world is kind of a completely conservative one. And in fact, your website says independent consultant and troublemaker and you also say that you are a, um, what is the phrase? Um, uh, yes, on the side, Goldmark writes poetry, has co-authored with Mark Gross on a play called The Trial of Osama Bin Laden, and is a compulsive practical joker. So uh, it's an unusual combination of traits. Um, how did you pull it off? How did you manage to be a compulsive practical joker and uh, a, uh, an acknowledged troublemaker and yet uh, walk the corridors that you have walked? Well, I think the central pattern has been engagement in public issues mm-hmm. all the way through. And that's what was common, whatever the job and whatever mm-hmm. the setting. And I inherited a couple of impish genes from my parents. Mm -hmm. There's also a lot of always laughter and games in the household when I was young. And uh, remember, there's a not terribly charming side of those of us who do jokes or are hams, to use a Mm -hmm. uh, less neutral word, and that is we like attention and we like to be on the stage. I still remember the moment in ninth grade, the first play I was ever in, it was a Shakespeare play, and I was the clown character called Grumio in The Taming of the Shrew. And we had rehearsal after rehearsal with these long, heavy lines, and we 14-year-olds struggling to get out these, you know, iambic pentameter sentences with doeth and sirrah and what saith thee. And it wasn't until the first night when the kids and their parents were there that I understood there was laughter. I understood they were laughing at me. And it just lived. I loved that they were laughing at me and that I was able to make them laugh. So that, that underground line was there all along and once it got tapped, there was no capping it. There is a story that I think you shared with me. Uh, it's certainly a story that is told about you and I'm not sure I have it right but it may have been when you had been named the head of the Port Authority and there was a gathering to welcome you, if I have the position right, and you put on a waiter's coat and began serving drinks and it took some time before people recognized that uh, this was actually the person that they had. Do I have that story right or partly right? You've got 
the large essential part of it right. It wasn't when I was named, okay. but I did. Uh, the Port Authority owned and built the World Trade Center. Right. It was a very famous restaurant on top called right. Windows in the World. Right. And I did at a fancy reception, including the members of my board of the Port Authority. I did dress up as a waiter one night, pass the canapes and the hors d'oeuvres, and I learned so much. I was just doing it as a gag. We're going to see what happens. And the minutes and the half hours dragged on, and they didn't recognize me. People I'd been sitting with in a board meeting 15 minutes earlier didn't recognize And I learned about something about how we treat those who are waiting on us or those who are fulfilling roles we think we understand and can predict. And of course, being a little impatient, I got to the point where I finally started spilling some things on purpose or dropping a few little sandwiches on people to get, finally, one of them, you know, in great anger looked up, you know, I forget what he said, you know, can't you do this job right? And then a gradual hush fell over the room. So you got, you got the essence of the story right, but like a lot of these things, when you go into a role that's not your everyday role, you learn an awful lot. You know that, too. I do know that. I do know that. So um, I look forward to talking to a lot of, uh, to, to you about a lot of the, the pieces of your life and work. But I think a starting point might be uh, you've also uh, been a, a columnist for Newsday. And uh, is that continuing now? Yes, it yeah. is. I, I, I get the columns. I wasn't sure whether um, something had happened with Newsday. I don't remember. Nope. Uh, the columns went to bi-weekly when they cut oh, the editorial pages in that. half. That's what it is. So in any case, I read your columns on a regular basis. But it seems to me that a, a central theme in your life is um, a sense that our country has lost its way. And I wonder um, if I have that correctly. Um, how would you describe your sense of that? You certainly have that theme correctly. I, um, how would I describe my sense of that? Since I've been engaged in public issues all my life, therefore have opinions about them, um, deeper than that have some of the scars you get when you're in a fight. Both We think of scars as largely bad, but I think there can be good scars as well as bad scars there. There are traces of places and ways in which you've committed yourself. Um, I would say my sense of it from all of that is that what was special about this country, particularly in the time, Michael, you and I were growing up, was its ability to make a relatively open, if cumbersome, governmental process full of checks and balances deliberately designed by the people who put it together to make sure one person of strong will couldn't capture it and take it where he or she wanted to go. So deliberately designed to have lots of opportunities for me to slow you down and you to slow me down and then the Supreme Court to tell both of us we were off, off the tracks. Despite all that, you and I grew up in a, t in a time when a lot of things changed and a lot of things changed for the better. Now, I didn't totally understand at the time how rare that was in our history or in any country's history. I didn't understand until I became a history teacher and we encountered some bad times in the, in the history of our country. Didn't understand how divided we'd been in the Civil War. Uh, didn't understand that we'd had periods uh, that you count in the decades in our history when 
things did not change for the better so well. I'm thinking of the Gilded Age. I'm thinking of probably the 30 years from 1870 to 1900 when large corporations made enormous industrial and scientific progress, but when nobody's lot got much better and there were several things that we would call a depression today, if not a serious recession. But what was happening when you and I were growing up? Well, you and I were born uh, into the wealthiest country in the world after it had won a war and when there was no other major power on the face of the globe that could match it. And there were mornings when if you got up and breathed and you were American, everything went right. And you and I were both born into good families and exposed to good education. And I don't know about you, but my first trips overseas, which were fairly young because my father was Euro European and there was a lot of Europe in my upbringing, my first trips overseas, sometimes even as a young boy, people would cross the street and come over and say, I just want to thank you for what your country did in the war. Been a long time since anything like that happened to you or me or to our children. Um, and we grew up in a period when a large minority in our own country that had once been slave took huge steps forward in what was open to them and what they were allowed to try and do for themselves and with others. And you and I grew up in a period in the beginnings of some effort to address the environmental problems we were creating for ourselves. And you're in my generation three times raised difficult issues with our parents. And three times we were told we had the wrong answer. First one was civil rights. I remember the first time I told my parents I was going to go sit in somewhere and I might get arrested. And I was told that was not a very smart thing to do and didn't think it was necessary. Uh, you and I both remember challenging the generation above us on the Vietnam War, being told we were wrong, we had to fight that war because we were part of a global struggle and Vietnam was just one place and if our enemies got the wrong idea there, who knows where it might lead. And the third thing, uh, which was quite strong with my own father, was the challenge on the behavior of large corporations that was beginning to damage the environment. And I was told, no, they'll figure it out, they'll get it right, they're essentially benign, and in no sense trying to get the government to figure out how to do it. Well, on those three issues, civil rights, Vietnam, and the environment, it turned out, Michael, that we had the right challenge, and we were given the wrong answer. So think what that taught us about questioning and about not taking the existing order of things as something you couldn't change, couldn't address, couldn't challenge if you want. And now almost all elements of that equation have changed, particularly the feeling in young people that it's not all that difficult to change something for the better. So what are some of the things we've lost our way on? With 25 or 30 years since we said as a country we're in real trouble with our educational system, we've done pretty goddamn little about changing it. We have let the country drift towards a division of economic power and income that is shocking. Mm -hmm. We are much more class, a society that behaves like a society of castes and classes than the Euro European ones we used to make fun of. Um, you know the figures, 1% of the population owns roughly 50 to 60% of the assets. All those arrows are going in the wrong direction. Mobility is reduced. The 
In real dollars, the earning power of middle income and lower income families has been stagnant now for nearly 20 years. Wow. And that's barely a serious debate. You think that's an issue in elections? When your congressman is running against another, you think that's an issue? You don't hear that talked about. Our country that did indeed used to be a world leader has done almost nothing in, in the past 30 years um, on stopping seriously the spread of nuclear proliferation and other weapons of mass destruction. We've done almost nothing on the greenhouse gases. And we were the country whose scientists virtually discovered and established that. I was looking at one of my old speeches from the 1980s, Michael. I gave my first speech warning about the danger of Iran getting nuclear weapons and that they were trying to do it in the 1980s. And what do we do about that under Reagan? Virtually zero. What do we do about that under Bush the Elder? Nothing. What do we do about it under Clinton? Nothing serious. What do we, George Bush the Younger, nothing. So now we get to the 11th hour, and of course they of course, they don't really think anybody in the rest of the world is serious about not wanting them to have nuclear weapons. I could go on um, as a country. We've sort of stopped doing really important things about food and feeding the planet soundly and safely and efficiently since we got to waste less food. Uh, going forward is not something the U.S. is a great leader on now. We haven't abandoned the field, but the fact that the world's capacity to produce food tripled between 1950 and 2000, which is largely the result of work done in the United States. Mm -hmm. So I could go on, but you get the drift. Um, perhaps the greatest loss is the loss of our own confidence in our ability to do things. Let me add one thing to that picture because it's a thing, it's, it's, it's a picture most people don't draw when they talk about us losing our way. Coming out of World War II, we had four major funnels of opportunity in this country. Now just that idea, a funnel or a ladder of opportunity is not something that in the American political lexicon we're used to thinking about. One was an egalitarian draft-oriented army and a lot of people were drafted in the army or volunteered in the army, got their first skills, job. A lot of people found that as the first rung to where they were finally going. The second funnel of opportunity was state and local government. You never learn that in any history. The expansion of steady paying jobs with good health benefits and retirement pension that occurred in the state and local government sector in this country from about 1950 to the mid 80s was amazing. It quadrupled state and local government. And people, particularly people of color, but relatively poorly educated people in that sector, that's where they climbed the ladder of opportunity. That's how they got in a position to put a down payment for the first house. Very, that's how they built up a modest pension. The third funnel of opportunity was the health sector. Expanded jobs, benefits, working hard at something. We're changing that now because we have to. I support those changes. We've got to have an efficient health sector. It's going to blow us apart. But it was a funnel of opportunity, and it never entered the debate when we decided to do things about exploding costs in health care that we were closing the third funnel. And the fourth funnel was our public state university systems, which were the gem of the world's 
open education systems. And so many people, you, a resident of California, know what it is to see one of those systems shredded and sapped and, and, and bleeding seriously. But what happened to the structure of opportunity in this country? We dismantled it without even having a debate about it. That's a really helpful uh, view. Uh, I guess we would probably both add to the revolutions that we participated in in one way or another. The women's movement would certainly be uh, an important one. Yes, um, yes. And also the gay rights movement um, has proven a, a really significant one. Those obviously came later in our, the women's movement was earlier, but gay rights came to the fore later. I have a, a narrative um, that um, sort of fits with what you're talking about, um, which um, when I talk about living in an age of extinctions and how climate change and toxic chemicals and all these new technologies uh, are driving this huge spasm of extinctions, the great and greatest in 60, 70 million years. Um, and then there's a counter-narrative, uh, which is, but if we look at the last 500 years, uh, that so much of the world went from dictatorships to democracy and from uh, workers as serfs to workers as independent agents. Um, and um, and uh, the so you know the labor movement, the human rights movement, the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, even the animal rights movement. Um, that what all of these things represent is an extension of respectful uh, awareness and consciousness to an ever-growing community of people. And um, and so it always seems to me that there's something of a, a race going on between the destructive forces that we have loosed on the world and this, um, there's a French writer, I forget his name, who wrote a book called The Civilizing Process. You may know it. I don't. Uh, but basically it's an argument that, uh, uh, that the civilizing process has, has continued to move forward in the world. And, um, you know, Paul Hawken has an interesting way of talking about it. He says, if you look at the problems, they seem insurmountable, but if you look at the people working on the problems around the world, you cannot ha help but have some sense of hope. Um, and um, it's, it's a really interesting thing to me, Peter, because... Um, I work, we both work, so much on the problem side of things that, um, that it's very easy, I think, for us um, to find hope very elusive to talk about in realistic terms. And I keep running into experiences where people say to me, um, or they feel that there's actually more hope out there than my narrative um, gives credit to. 
Now, when I talk about this counter-narrative, that's my effort to create the hopeful narrative. Uh, I have a friend uh, uh, who uh, works a lot with young people, and she says to me, uh, Michael, we have to protect these young people from the cynicism of the old. And it's very interesting. I have a lot of younger friends who are part of the, what is called the maker movement, which is a subset of the do-it-yourself movement, uh, which yes. is big movements. And actually, two young friends that we rent a studio to uh, uh, behind our house. And, you know, they're in their late 20s. And I talk with them and their friends, and I say, do you feel... I was so interested, I said to them, do you feel despair about the future? How do you deal with it? And there was like 16 of them in the room at somebody's, um, at a party celebrating um, the marriage of two of them, or the planned marriage of two of them. And to a one, they said, oh no, we feel a real sense of hope. She said, sure, there have always been problems. So what I'm curious about on the other hand, I have other people who tell me young people are filled with despair, you know. What I'm curious about is how authentically we can bring hope into these narratives that you and I both construct, which are narratives of our country losing the way, of the world on a crisis course. Um, and I wonder if you think about that. I think about it a lot because one of the things I've done over the past couple of years is try to figure out how I want to spend my last useful decade of public engagement. So I've said to myself, my metaphor for that last useful decade, de decades of metaphor, eight years, 12 years, but it's a, it's a hunk of time and commitment. And I want to spend it uh, in the public arena precisely, Michael, addressing what you described. I want to spend it helping the generations after me, younger people, if I can, acquire some tools and some insights so that they can deal with hope and conviction and effectiveness the tidal wave-sized problems coming at them, which incidentally I think many of them realize. They may still be hopeful, but they understand these are not minor waves on the horizon coming at them. So that's how I reconcile them and how I'm going to try and spend my last decade on this planet. I have, uh, I'm interested in the idea of stance. I have an existential picture of myself, which is you generate hope by being hopeful. Uh, you overcome long odds by being committed, even if a rational analysis suggests that you couldn't possibly win or overcome what it, what it is you're working on. But after all, rational analysis is a clumsy, imprecise tool. It's the only one, it's the one we have the most of, but it's been wrong over and over again. You and I can cite, cite 100 examples of it being wrong. So my picture of that is, my physical stance is, I'm on a scaffold on a cliff face. And it's very hot, I have my shirt off. I'm sweating, and my job, Michael, I have a hammer in my left, a chisel in my left hand and a hammer in my right. And my job is to carve the most meaningful and beautiful pattern I can on that rock. And it's very hard. Sometimes I miss the chisel or I hit my thumb with the hammer or I strike the rock and it makes no dent at all. Now, if 
you were walking 100 yards behind me, on the hillside behind me, you might yell, Goldmark, you idiot, two feet to the left. In other words, if I just knew enough to move my little scaffold two feet to the left, I would find a fault line that I could hammer in and have enormous lever. But there is nobody walking behind me on the hillside. So my job is to strike as true and with as much focus as I can and create as meaningful a pattern as I can. And that's what it will be at the end of the day. One of the things I do to try and keep in touch with what's going on around me is I, as I meet regularly with young people. I even have a thing called young people's dinners. Where you I get told to me get, about that. You get groups of young people together. Get together and I have a couple of networks of young people around the world, which is great fun, but it's, this is selfish, Michael. How I'm, many of those do you have? It's probably 75 to 100 of them. I don't, that's not how many I get together for dinner. I never get more than 10. There's probably 75 or 100 that are sort of around the move world. through these networks. And how does it work, like groups of... They're not organized that way. Some know some, and there's some I ask. I say, I want you to get 10 of your brightest, friends. most curious and friends. Have, have them to dinner with Right. So that person is obviously an organized. I have a young lady who just became director of human resources for George Soros's foundation. She was head of career development at INSEAD in France. What a network she had. Fascinating young girl who was a brilliant swimmer and was, was on the East German swimming team. And running by the pool, she fell and broke her leg when she was 10. And it saved her professional life. Because she avoided the team, she avoided the party nonsense, and she avoided the steroids. Mm. She went off on a different track. So that's an example of... of so do you have a sense, given that you want to devote the next decade to helping younger people find the tools they need, do you have a sense of strategy about that yet, or are you just watching to see where you can... I don't have a sense of strategy. I'm just uh, watching, connecting with people in efforts that seem to make a difference. Uh, do you imagine that it is most likely to be in some institutional role, or do you think it's going to be more freelance, sort of moving through the world as... I think probably more the former. I've always gravitated to large institutions, as you know. Yeah. The trouble with most of our large institutions is they're either private or national. And what we most need are institutions that think and behave globally, and very few of our institutions are. So it may be a mix, but that's, for instance, why uh, part of the work I do with is with Ashoka. Um, and it's... Uh, it's part of it's it's part of the reason I try and make sure that I encourage the young people I'm working with to organize their own efforts horizontally and across borders. Yeah, I'm glad borders. you mentioned Ashoka because our friend and colleague Bill Drayton, who started Ashoka, social entrepreneurs uh, for the public, um, went through this as we both know this uh, change of vision. Where at first he was focused on that one-tenth of one percent of social entrepreneurs who were not going to rest until their idea for social change became a reality and, and developed a very remarkable methodology for identifying these folks around the world. But then he went through this process where he thought, no, what we really need is to reach the conclusion that everyone needs to be a change maker. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, his analysis, and he's a very analytical person with a McKinsey background and so forth, 
is that given the tidal wave of problems that we face, uh, that it cannot be top-down and that there needs to be this enormously widespread uh, capacity of people having a sense that they have the tools. And that has led him to a strong interest in a quite early childhood engagement in education because he feels that that capacity to recognize oneself as a change maker really starts early. And depends, uh, he, he would argue if he were here, it depends on acquiring the skills that we call empathy, which is the ability right. to understand what the other person is thinking, feeling, mm -hmm. and reacting. Mm -hmm. And he feels that's the doorway to a lot of these other skills, mm -hmm. teamwork, mm -hmm. collaboration, and so on. Mm -hmm. You're listening to a conversation with Peter C. Goldmark and Michael Lerner at the New School at Commonweal. So I'd like to um, take you back to some of the major assignments that you've had. And let's start with the most recent, um, the Senior Officer on, on Climate Work for Environmental Defense Fund. Um, what did you learn from that? One of the things I learned all over again, I'd worked in some international issues before, was how poorly structured the world we live in is in, to deal with global problems. That is, problems that are affecting many people in many different places at once. It just isn't organized. We're still living with the old shells of the national organizations and even uh, the organizations that we call international very proudly. 90% of them, if you look at them closely, are Atlantic institutions founded by white men just before and just after World War II. And once you put that label on them, you can understand better how they work. So that's one thing I found. Another thing I found is, and you, somebody like you, Michael, knew this long before I did, but how closely our fate is bound up with the, the world of environment slash health mm -hmm. and how much impact we have on it that we, that we don't always understand very well. You know, there's a huge sense of disappointment in the philanthropic community, uh, as you well know, that there's been this enormous philanthropic investment in climate change work mm -hmm. with so little to show for it. Do you share that sense of, do you, in other words, having been the uh, president of the Rockefeller Foundation, CEO of the Rockefeller Foundation, as somebody who's done large-scale philanthropy, do you share the sense of disappointment with the investment? Do you think that, that if one looks at it from a sort of hilltop view, were the foundations misguided in how they invested or, or was there a structural problem with the investment strategy, or was it simply too complicated to say? I'm disappointed with the overall record of that investment. I think it largely failed, and but I don't think the reasons are very mysterious, and I don't think they're structural. I think the foundations were not nearly daring enough. I'll give a couple of obvious examples of that and they were not nearly global enough. You go back and look at those budgets and you see how much was spent on fairly traditional, fairly non-innovative efforts in the mainstream U.S. nonprofit community. As a, how many of them gave a grant, to give you an example, to the Indian Youth Climate Network that almost single-handedly in a shoestring budget began to change the debate in India, which was a really backward country on, on the climate change issue. They, they had the old litany, you know, you guys in the north filled up the atmosphere with your carbon, we're gonna put some now because we're gonna develop, you know, 
story of the Indian Youth Climate Network is really, I'm just using them as an example. It came from young people, it fought the Indian establishment, and it made great headway. So, not daring enough and too US-centered and, and not even very innovative. Um, you look at the difference between what the foundations did on that struggle and what they did in the civil rights struggle. Very different. The civil rights struggle was an American struggle, so you didn't face the, uh, the overseas challenge part. I'll give you another example they didn't do. Uh, clearly, there were enemies abroad within our country, let alone globally, who didn't want us to do anything about climate change for a variety of reasons. Well, how many foundations funded investigative reporting to expose that? American politics loves a villain, and there were villains in our midst. I, I must have suggested that to 10, 20 foundations. And remember, part of the concept of a foundation is you are independent enough and protected enough by the tax laws that you can take on the tough ones. But where was the funding to expose the facts the American people, and therefore its political system, could understand there were villains trying to stop us from doing anything? Those are just, yeah, so I'm disappointed. I don't think it was structural. I think it was a failure of vision, nerve, and ambition. So there was a failure of vision, nerve, and ambition on the part of the foundations was there a failure of uh, strategic vision, nerve, and ambition on the part of the NGO leadership as well? Less so. Mm -hmm. uh, to some degree, yes, but less so. There's some very good organizations. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I guess I come down a little more heavily on the foundations. Mm -hmm. um, some combination, you raise an interesting point, some combination of the foundations and the environmental organizations mm -hmm. also had to define this as not just a classical environmental issue. They had to define it as an economic issue, how we organize ourselves to be productive as a survival issue, and they were a little slow on that. Um, but I'm, you know... The role of a foundation is to sit back and say, what's going on here? Gee, maybe the established players aren't doing everything that has to be done. Mm -hmm. So stepping back, because we could spend a lot of time on each of those, uh, from your work with environmental uh, defense to uh, your tenure at the International Herald Tribune, um, what did you learn there? I learned something about how to put together good double agendas in the global setting. By a double agenda, a newspaper has to make enough money to stay alive, and a newspaper also has to carry out a mission that has a fairly clear set, good journalism, of good set, clear set of ethical principles, uh, some of which are counter to making money sometimes. Uh, I used to love, Michael, the, the uh, moment when it turns out most publishers or CEOs don't like, which is when it's midnight and your editor says, Mr. Goldmark, we have to go with this story because we have most of the questions answered. Most of the questions? You're trembling in your boots when you hear that because our competitors are going tomorrow. we got to go. And your advertising director says, Mr. Goldmark, if we let this story go tomorrow, our biggest advertiser is going to walk out of the paper and that's 10% of your budget. That's why you're in the business in the first place, is to reconcile those two value systems. Um, so the challenge in the case of the International Herald Tribune, whose costs were enormous because you had to print 
in cities all over the world and you had to print inefficiently. You had to print just a few thousand copies. I mean, how many copies do you think you printed in Athens or Frankfurt or name your city? Not very many. And then you couldn't distribute them efficiently up and down the block. You know, you had to drop them off five by ten to a few newsstands in the part of town where people were rich enough or, t or there were enough tourists to buy them. So the economics were crazy. So to thread that needle, figure out how to do that was, was great fun. And uh, one of the, the way we did in the end was to form partnerships with good national papers. And that was fun working with them and teaching some of them some of our journalism and learning some of their journalism. Um, but I got a sense of how wild and woolly um, and without... I would put the difference is the working in that international global arena was like a, a walk on a rocky trail, whereas working in the American economy or some of the Western European economies was like being on a superhighway. Mm -hmm. You spent uh, your years at the International Herald Tribune based in Paris, and you've spent a lot of time uh, at the Rockefeller Foundation, at the Tribune, at... Um, at uh, uh, environmental defense uh, moving around the world. Really, you're part of that, whatever, class of global citizens in a very real sense, both um, in underdeveloped, less developed, and developed countries. Um, if you think about the perspective that you developed in your life, in a sense, as a global citizen, that perhaps even very thoughtful people, say, in the United States, might not have as somatic a sense of. Um, what has that experience brought to you? How do, how do you tactily feel the world in a way that really comes out of that uh, life as a, as a global citizen? One thing, I do a lot of counseling, what I call career counseling, of young people trying to figure out what to do with their lives. And one of the things I always ask them, come out of college or they're, they're 28 and they didn't like that Wall Street job and they want to do something else, I say, have you done your rice paddy time? Mm -hmm. And most Americans haven't. A lot of Europeans haven't. And I guess I could be accused of being either patronizing or slurring, but what I mean by rice paddy time is spend some time living working, breathing, eating in the world of the two to three billion at the lower half of the pyramid. And largely because of the Rockefeller Foundation, but some other jobs. I led a project to Africa when I was a junior in college, which was my first exposure uh, with that world. Uh, and I'd been a young reporter in Cyprus at 17, so that was my first exposure to violence and civil wars and just wild, brutal hate of one people for another, in that case the Turks and the Greeks on the island of Cyprus. But I was lucky enough to be exposed and had the chance not to live for years on end, but to really understand there was a whole world out there where creatures like me with the same likes and dislikes, the same emotions, the same genetic equipment, uh, the same ability to laugh, and the same terrible experience of crying when things went wrong out there. And that that was, in fact, historically, and even today, the predominant human experience on this globe. 
So you learn a lot from that. And I think it's really important to come in contact with that world. And if you can come in contact and understand that world a little bit, then you can understand other worlds. Mm. Uh, even if they're veiled to you because of language or culture or some other of the barriers we humans construct around our societies. But that would be the clear, I would say, to every young person. Have you done your rice paddy time? Have you learned mm. that world? Going back now to your tenure as CEO of the Rockefeller Foundation, um, of course, philanthropy is a, a subject that, from very different perspectives, we've both been engaged in um, for some time. And uh, you were um, kind enough to read and I think actually use my little book on philanthropy, A Gift Observed, Reflections on Philanthropy and Civilization. Um, so um, we both thought about that. But I remember I did a conversation with you on the last days that you were at the Rockefeller Foundation. And I asked you what was on your mind. And I remember you saying to me, what's on my mind is the problem of how really good small projects go to scale. Um, does that remain a, a question for you? It does, and um, interestingly enough, and I guess I'm a little ashamed of this, I'm really only just now turning to that in a more serious way because one of the sets of tools I'm trying to figure out how to help the next generation acquire and get is this, the skill, the capacity to take good small things to scale because there's so many good things in the world. Or so but I wonder, if it isn't, I wonder if it isn't intrinsic to many, if not most, small things that they actually don't scale well. Many but not all. But not all. So the trick is, yeah. I mean, look at the fish that lays a million eggs. Right. Look, it's, it's all over nature, this pattern. Many but not all, and that's the key. And why is, shouldn't it be possible for us to decide which one can go to scale? Now, we do it in science. We say, that vaccine, we're going to learn how to mass produce it and give it to everybody. Or that seed, that's what the Green Revolution was. But we haven't learned to do it very well with social change. So a question for me is, if we look at some of the great social innovations of the 20th century, and we look at the role of American philanthropy in those. Uh, so you mentioned the Green Revolution, which, of course, the Rockefeller Foundation played a, a critical role in developing. Uh, so that's one that where philanthropy really made a big difference. Mm -hmm. But if we look at things, let's just take the civil rights movement. Uh, in my view, philanthropy played a contributing role, but not the seminal role on civil rights. I agree. If we look at Alcoholics Anonymous, philanthropy paid, played no role in the development of a really extraordinary you know, um, thing. In fact, I, my memory is that Rockefeller... They went to Rockefeller, and for whatever reason, he turned them down, or he said, I forget the story exactly. I've got to defend the old flint-eyed gentleman. They right. came and they asked him for $100,000, right. and he talked to his board, and he said, if I give them $100,000, you know, they'll wallow around and more than that. Let's give them $5,000 a quarter for the first three years. Oh, he, he did. did, and they got launched. But anyway. Well, all right. Well, then, well, good, good, wonderful correction, uh, uh, but not a major role. No. Okay. If, if, so, again and again, if you look at 
you know, the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, um, the women's movement, on and on, you can see philanthropy getting behind these movements at a certain point and playing a contributing role. But very often what philanthropy tries to do is to pick winners of movements that don't have that kind of grassroots push behind them and spend enormous amounts of money on projects that once the money ends, they fade back into the ground. So I'm genuinely curious as to whether you think there are operating rules of any kind that would enable one to identify social innovations worth pursuing, and if so, at what scale? I mean, you know, is it like uh, venture capitalism in, in a sense? How do, you, how do you begin to think about how you single out those social innovations where philanthropy could play a really significant role and um, where uh, the chance of success makes the investment worth doing? I think there are some characteristics you could look for. Now, I'm pretty alone on this. Right. I don't, when I'm in conversations on this or on a panel somewhere, I don't, it, you know that experience on a panel where somebody else says what you were going to say it never happens to me on this subject, <laughs> ever. Right. But I'll give you some short uh, outlines of it. Um, one thing I think you look for is you look for a field where there are a lot of leaders, not just one magic music man, where there are a lot of leaders. And I can come back and give you an example of that. Um, Another thing you need usually is, is what we call intermediaries in the business, which is that in-between organization, between the source of the money, which can be public or private, and the fledgling operations, which are going to be multiple and lo located in different places. You can't deal directly from the great big clumsy central vault to the little, lively, young kindergartners rushing around changing the world. And uh, two of the things where there have been large social movements in which philanthropy played a key role in the past 30 years, uh, they did have intermediaries of a sort. And I think that's Can you important. Give the example? One would be the microcredit movement, mm -hmm. uh, which is a little more complicated than just Eunice and Grameen, but there were intermediaries. And the other, the other one is one that is not widely recognized, because I think we've had this conversation. It violates the way both the liberals and the conservatives in this country see the world. And therefore, neither of them ever embraced it. But largely triggered by philanthropies and an intermediary, um, we took a we, we went a great way in this country towards eliminating these large bombed out central city areas that were just unlivable and full with violence. It's not all peaches and rose there, but the landscape of American cities, with the exception of Detroit and one or two others, is remarkably different than it was in their neighborhood organizations, and a lot of people own their own houses and so on. Now that was done through intermediaries, and the taking it to scale as opposed to pioneering it was largely conceived by a group of foundations. So if you were to look around today and identify one, two, or three areas where you think uh, uh, far-sighted funders could undertake that kind of initiative, do you have any sense of what they are? One is low-cost health care for the poor. 
I'll give you an example. Uh, within that framework, there's a wonderful program called Vision Spring. And a young fellow who was both an Ashoka fellow and a Skull fellow figured out how to produce and deliver glasses that are corrective, Michael, not just the standard diopter, that are corrective, designed for your particular astigmatism or whatever you've got for $5 a pair in India and $7 in Central America. And we celebrated his millionth customer last May. Fantastic. Now, here's another, this allows me to point out another characteristic. Private money gets in there. You can't take it to scale just using right. nonprofit right. money or government money. All these things I mentioned had private money circulating. It was just subsidized or built or the leadership capacity was paid for by risk money or grant money at the beginning. So low-cost health care is one. Um, I believe that we are going to have to take to scale and that it can be break-even uh, energy efficiency retrofit. Mm -hmm. I spent without success, a lot of time in the past four or five years, trying to find the right intermediary to nurture and incubate that field. Mm -hmm. Jobs, low-income neighborhoods, energy retrofit corporations. Mm -hmm. uh, it's win-win-win. Mm -hmm. Those are good examples. I often argue that the greatest philanthropic success of American philanthropy in the 20th century in terms of social change was the Reagan Revolution and that it was a situation where a small number of foundations with a very clear sense of strategy set out to change American social policy in fundamental ways, and they succeeded. Now, I may disagree completely with the direction they took, but it seems to me that if you ask yourself, is there any philanthropic initiative in the 20th century that can match the social impact of the small set of conservative foundations that created and have sustained the Reagan revolution, it's very hard to do. I think what? that's a good example. I think you're largely right in that. Mm -hmm. Certainly it was unmatched by anything on the liberal side of the agenda, which is a failure of imagination and commitment on, on that side of the aisle. What's tragic about it is it went off the rails. It was like one of these flu viruses that suddenly goes very dangerous and very viral. And you look at what a lot of these groups are doing and saying today, it's, uh, it, it bears almost no relation to reality, and it did when they started. So in that sense, I think it's a, a doomed, almost a, a worthy of a Shakespearean tragedy where larger-than-life figures, again, let's be clinical about it and not talk about the value of the ideas they can. Larger than life set of figures, start something, become committed, apparently succeed, and then it goes bad on them. Mm -hmm. But I wonder also if there, you said it was a failure of imagination on the progressive side that we haven't done the same thing. I wonder if it's a failure of imagination. I wonder if it's structural in the sense that if you are uh, an economic conservative who will find cultural allies, the number of things that you need to do to make the system work your way is relatively limited. Whereas if you're progressive, there are a thousand different ways that you want to improve the world. And so rather than having the ability to get a small group of people to agree on a disciplined set of targets that they're going to follow a single business plan and methodology over a whole series of years, which culturally they're set up to do as business-oriented people, you have the power, but also the disability, 
of this sort of grassroots energy that's trying to change everything and that will continuously create problems for the conservatives uh, because there's this sort of hydra-headed bubbling up of all these progressive ideas. But it's almost impossible to get a set of key actors to agree on a disciplined progressive plan. That does seem to be a continuing characteristic, uh, at least during this period uh, in the history of the progressive movement. It does. Um, something in me doesn't take easily to the argument that it's in the nature of the agenda and the, and the variety of opportunities for intervention, you know, all these sirens of social change beckoning. Um, and I think we're, we're, we're living through such a revolution in the digital dimension and in the porosity of our societies to forces information coming from other places around the globe that it's, it's difficult to judge whether one side's agenda is really easier than the other. If the price of uh, having a simple agenda is what we see in the uh, caucus of the House of Representatives, that's not a pretty or a fun or a productive place to be these days. Um, which, uh, on whose agenda was it to create and affirm this gigantic structure of spying and espionage and surveillance that turned out we've built? Well, it was really both. Everybody was involved in that one. Um, was certainly never put, never made an issue by either side. So I'm, I'm not sure. I think the way you're putting it is too clean cut for me. Mm -hmm. I do wish... Many times I've wished, as you do, that the progressives had a little higher degree of discipline and knowing how to forge a common, uh, common agenda. You're listening to a conversation with Peter C. Goldmark and Michael Lerner at the New School at Commonweal. You mentioned the digital revolution, and one of the outcomes of the digital revolution has been, you know, these dot-com uh, billionaires and their forays into philanthropy. Um, there was a lot of talk at the beginning about how they were going to reinvent philanthropy. Um, how do you assess um, the strengths and weaknesses of um, what you've seen of dot-com philanthropy? To what extent is it a reinvention of philanthropy? How effective is the reinvention? Uh, how do you sort of see that effort in the history of uh, American and international philanthropy. Taken as a group, I don't find their record to date any more impressive than some traditional philanthropy. Um, I was really surprised at some of the uh, early efforts. I'm thinking of, uh, well, I'll say it. I'm thinking of the Google efforts, and particularly early on, really. All, I, I found shocking that they, they really didn't do a rigorous job on picking who the people who were going to run it. That's lesson one. When you're giving people such power and such discretion, you want to know what inner compass they steer by, and you want, you want to really do a thorough portrait uh, of what the person's abilities and weaknesses are and put together. Didn't do that. Um, so taken as a whole, I don't find them more impressive. Uh, and uh, but I find the the pace and the willingness to think innovatively of many of those people very impressive. So I'm hopeful for some of them. Uh, I think what the Gates Foundation has done in health is very impressive. Really good 
for in a difficult field, good first-class stuff that has left an impact. Um, what all of the dot-com philanthropies have done together in education looks more like a yawn than anything else to me. Is, uh, do you worry at all at a time of decreasing government uh, expenditures uh, that the concentrations of power of something like the Gates Foundation are in any sense troubling to you? Nope. Okay. All the things I worry about, that's not on the list. <laughs> right. um, sure, some, some foundations wind up being captured by single personality or they get off the track, and certainly there is mm -hmm. a whole series of foundations that are deep into political territory and whose use of tax-exempt status is a device and a pretty shameless one. Mm -hmm. But generally, do I, do I worry too much power in the hands of the foundations? Nope. Mm -hmm. I know. Your father was a quite remarkable inventor. Uh, 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 Peter Carl Goldmark. He invented the long playing record and the first practical color television. Right. Um, and um, I'm curious, um, what was it like uh, growing up in your in your household? What was what was what was your childhood actually like? It was like living with an enormously inventive, mischievous, restless person who in many ways was a child. Mm -hmm. When we were older and we used to talk, when I was in my 30s and he was in his 50s, many times without realizing it, he would call me John, which was the name of his older brother. I don't think he even knew he was doing it. Um, he was emotionally quite immature, uh, but with all of us, but me being the oldest me earlier uh, and more often, he'd dragoon us into helping him with his projects or, you know, hold a soldering iron while I screw this in. So we got a, a really close-up sense of what inventing and how much trial and error is involved and how many times you come to a turn in the road and there he is saying, you know, this thing didn't pop full-blown out of his head. There he is. This, uh, what do I do now? I didn't think this was going to happen. So Let's have he, lunch. We'll, we'll talk about it at lunch. Then did, we'll do did it. Did he have a workshop at the, in the house? Yes, he did. Uh-huh. In the basement or where? was in the basement. Uh-huh. Yep. Big? Spent a lot. Nope. Mm -hmm. Big, crammed tools spilling out of every, every closet. Mm -hmm. And uh, another thing I discovered when I got a little older, which really threw me at first, Michael, and bothered me, he used to lie to his bosses about what he was doing. And when I called him on it once, he said, so, Peter they wouldn't back some of these things I'm working on. So I got to tell them, you know, that Project A is doing fine and Project B, yeah, we're going to have this long playing record thing worked out just another two months. Because they don't understand what we're trying to do here. What was your mother like? Um, my mother was patient, also had a good sense of humor. There was a lot of humor around. You needed a sense of humor to live with your father. Oh, you did. Oh, he was difficult. And... Uh, they were divorced when I was 10, and that was a, had a huge emotional impact on me, and their paths went different ways. So it was a stormy marriage. I mean, let's look at it. It was a rootless European scientist mm -hmm. and a New England wasp. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so it was a little of everything going on there. Did you then stay with your mother? I lived with my mother, visited my father, mm -hmm. and my mother grew greatly in strength and emotional maturity. An amazing woman. She's alive today, Michael. We wow. celebrated last month her 94th birthday. Oh, how wonderful. And she's still laughing and still smiling and uh, lives in the house she and Daddy built together oh, in wonderful. 1940, which is a lucky thing. So what was Peter Gomark like in eighth grade? In eighth grade, I made a key discovery about myself. 
My parents had split up, I guess, two years before. Um, and with the energy and the pain of that and the uncertainty about whether the whole world was going to come apart, I discovered that I could get things done well and that other people appreciated that. And that's what I discovered somewhere in the eighth. And, and that's how I coped with the uncertainty and the pain in my world was I started organizing things and getting it done. What it took odd form. Well, it took an odd form. It became a, turned out to be a story that was told widely, widely and wildly. And the school I was in seemed to me natural. Eighth grade, the French teacher didn't show up one day. Now, what are kids doing? Well, they start throwing spitballs pretty soon. Three of them are out in the hall. I took over the class and gave the class, and the kids went along with it. I don't know where that impulse came from, Michael, but they, I mean, the faculty was talking about that for five years. Where did that, where did that impulse come from? When I got to uh, Choate in uh, 10th grade, I became head of the newspaper. That's where, that was my first exposure to newspapers, and I loved putting out that. I loved the deadlines. I loved pressure. I loved difficult choices uh, under constrained situations. And what were you like at a, as a senior at Choate? Oh, I was just having fun. I was more and more of my energy Still was running the newspaper? Yes, outside the classroom and managing editor of the literary magazine. I was trying to, they wouldn't let me be head of the literary magazine because I was head of the paper. But I was, I was working in both worlds and I was a bell ringer because I found the chapel sermons boring. So I figured out, gee, I love music. I'm going to join the bell ringers. So rather than sit downstairs and hear these sermons every, I'm talking not Sunday, I'm talking about every day. In the evening, I would go up and ring the bells and improvise a few hymns nobody had quite heard before. And then we just have to polish the stuff afterward. Usually get down about three minutes before the end of the service. And what, what was Harvard like for you? Harvard was a further expansion in the, in the area of public affairs because I really, the center of my life really was, that, that's, we had a disarmament organization called Toxin, which uh, mm -hmm. really led the first national peace demonstration in the country after the, you know, after World War II, coming out of the Eisenhower years, which were no, known as apathy. And uh, that's where I organized the project to Africa uh, in my junior year. The, the administration of Harvard nearly fainted. They, they didn't believe it was what, what was the project? I, I organized before the Peace Corps, which also mm. angered the Peace Corps, <laughs> uh, a teaching program to a country in Africa and organized the students, raised the money, and uh, never bothered to ask the permission of the university. And suddenly, you know, we're two months from going, and suddenly they realize this thing is real. And the dean summoned me. You don't have permission. You don't have a faculty advisor. Anyway, we got it all worked out. What, what was your field of study at Harvard? Uh, I started in pre-med, mm -hmm. probably scientific heritage. Then I switched to English. Wanted to study literature. That's. My first real exposure to poetry, Archibald MacLeish, all those influences. And you've written poetry much of your life. I've right? read but it. But all of it unpublished, right? Maybe two pieces published, yeah. Uh -huh. it's, just, it's just for me. And an unpublished novel, I believe? Yes, there is an unpublished novel. That one I tried to get published, didn't succeed. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but then I switched to government for my mm -hmm. last two years. Who were your most important mentors at Harvard? Who do, who do you remember? Most important mentor was not at Harvard, but most important mentor was Frederick O'Reilly Hayes, who was deputy director of the Community Action Program in the OEO, the, the War on Poverty, or the Skirmish Against Poverty, as we renamed it. Uh, that was my first job after teaching school for a couple of years, and I went with him to New York. At, you taught became, at Putney? 
I taught at Putney for two years. Then I worked for the War on Poverty, and Fred mm -hmm. was asked by John Lindsay to be his budget director. Mm -hmm. And I went into Fred's office and said, would, he, would you take me with you? And he did. And he was, he was that magical figure early in my life who wanted me to go faster rather than slower, had confidence in me, but would be absolutely disciplined in telling me when I was off the track. So you were assistant uh, director of the budget of New York City at the age of 27, chief of staff to John Lindsay at 29, and then at 30 named head of the Massachusetts Department of uh, Human Services. Um, what was that early period of your life like for you? Can you describe that trajectory? I mean, that's three years, right, from assistant director of the budget to chief of staff for John Lindsay to uh, director of uh, Massachusetts Department of Human Services. That's a three-year period. What was that three years like? It was a period of enormous growth. It was, it was in the context of a country that was trying all sorts of experiments and initiatives in the public field. Um, and it was my first experiences with power, power, assembling teams, defining agendas, forming strategies, and mobilizing people and resources to execute them. All of that obviously was new to me at that age. Um, but it was, which we tend to forget, a period of ferment and almost frenzied communication of insights and learning. Remember the Kennedy School was new. Schools of public policy were new. Were all sorts of formal and informal mechanisms for talking and learning about how you build a change strategy or how you recruit a good team. And I was lucky enough to be in some of the places that were at the forefront of this. You know, some people who do this kind of thing uh, do it with a kind of a innate sense of self-confidence of some kind. Others do it against a background of anxiety and terror. I mean, there are two different strategies or everything in between. As you did this, um, I have a sense that you did it from a sense of fundamental self-confidence. I did, you're yeah. right. Where do you think that sense of self-confidence came from? Was it just genetically how you came out or were, were there important sources that, I know for myself, um, I have a combination of, I do not have complete self-confidence, but I have core self-confidence, and I think it's partly genetic, but I think it's partly that I had a father and above all a mother who loved me with all their hearts. Mm. And I, I had that incredibly rare experience, I can be a freak in a room, of a happy childhood. You know, obviously there were challenges, but I was just filled with love. Hmm. And it, it, while I am, by my nature, uh, not a completely self-confident human being, um, and quite introverted, nonetheless, that core place, I think, came not only from genetics, but that sense of love. And I'm curious if you ever ask yourself where that sense of confidence came from. I don't think it came from that strong core of parental love. I think that's as you describe it in your case, I think it's probably one of the reasons you're a more rounded and emotionally much more mature and sophisticated person than I am. I would say my self-confidence came from a combination of three or four simple things that happened to converge into one river. Good genes, accident of birth and education, um, and uh, 
the form of overcoming the pain of the divorce, the form that that took, which was starting to perform well in the outer world and taking pleasure from that. And that, that was almost the arena to which I went when my first natural arena fell apart. Mm-hmm. And that was a little bit of accident. So I think that's where it came from. So after that set of stints, you became uh, the budget director under Governor Hugh Carey uh, from 1975 to 77. And you're credited as being one of the central architects of the financial rescue of the state of New York and New York City. Um, um, that must have been quite a... uh, quite an experience. It was a very intense and heavy experience. It was, I was lucky to have it. Why? The job of budget director of New York State is always a good job because that's where the executive budget was invented. And so it's a very powerful job with a lot of tools. It's a much sought after job. But Michael, that job has existed for 200 years and I had the three most interesting I was dealing with the CEO of every major bank in the country. Um, it was, with, there's probably one other that matches it, but it was certainly the most pressure-filled job I had. What is the other that would match it? Well, the other was one dimension of the human services job in Massachusetts. I, one of the departments under me was corrections, prisons. Mm-hmm. And this was a year after Attica, and the walls of every prison in the country were vibrating and... In the course of that and a couple of other jobs, I've actually had to deal with riots, strikes, and once a hostage situation. So you wanted to, I never forget my first month in the Rockefeller Foundation, one of the senior program officers came into town. She said, Mr. Goldmark, Mr. Goldmark, we have a crisis. So I sort of rubbed my hand and sat up and said, oh, tell me, I mean, I was some rector of the University of Zimbabwe, had, you know, overstated. Most people don't know what real, that's real pressure. I remember one night in Massachusetts, uh, my then youngest daughter, now middle daughter, was in bed with me and my wife, and she was sick. She was throwing up on my chest. I had the commissioner of correction on one phone saying, Peter, don't send in the state police. I've got everything under control. There'll be carnage. And I got the director of the state police on the other phone, Michael, saying, if you don't send me these famous words, you know, if you don't let me send my men in in five minutes, I can't be responsible, Mr. Goldmark. That's pressure. Um, you like pressure. I like pressure. Mm-hmm. I don't mind it. I like it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I rise to it, and uh, I'm not afraid of it. I don't get paralyzed by it. I think that's chemical. I think that's not a virtue. I think it's just chemical. And in the financial crisis, there were literally, I remember a couple of nights, Michael, where we didn't know how we were going to fund the city and the state the next morning. Mm-hmm. And we developed something we called the Miracle of the Month Club. And we developed something called the Pastor Pistol Club, which get all the players in the room, the banks, the labor unions, the feds were there. That's where I first met Paul Volcker. He and I would sit down every Friday evening uh, in his office in the Federal Reserve with no one knowing and discuss how we were doing. And I would help him craft some messages to transmit to the federal government, and he would tell me what was likely to happen. And with the, you know, he would pass messages back to Wall Street, and the banks would have been. Anyway. Uh, the Pass the Pistol Club is, that became an analogy for we'd get these players in the room and see who was willing to pull the trigger and cause the default. Nobody wanted to be, not the banks, not the labor, you think it through. Nobody wanted, so we would pass the pistol around the room and say, oh, what are you going to do now? And they would always find a way to keep things going and pass the pistol to the guy on their left. 
that was real pressure. And uh, there were, I got exhausted sometimes. I would do the state job in the day, and very often at night, I would fly down to the city in the state plane, as in, yeah, on the state plane, fly down to the city and do the city's budget at night. Amazing. So um, the last uh, job before you got into Rockefeller Foundation was uh, as uh, head of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey where you served for eight years and you were credited with uh, having transformed, this is the New York Times, having transformed a sluggish bi-state agency into an energetic vehicle for regional economic improvement. Um, how did you do that? What was the, what was the vision? Uh, what did you see when you walked in and what did you decide you were going to try to do? I looked at the place and I said, this is an engine of capital investment and we got to use it for that, and we got to get the governors to understand it, that that's what it is. Uh, and they don't have very many engines of capital investment. And remember, the region had just come through the New York City crisis and the recession. Um, things were pretty wobbly, and so we built a program of investment that was, was as much an economic as transportation things. And we, the other key thing, Michael, is we went in the offense. Here's what we're for. We had a Congress of Regional Recovery, big meetings of how to help the region recover. And the key to the Port Authority is not to go passive and let the governors define the agenda. It's to put an agenda out there, then everybody debates it, and they knock some of them down. But if you put five things out there, two or three of them you're going to wind up doing. So we just got, and I restaffed the place very heavily, changed its mission, um, and uh, really made it a partner in, in the economic recovery of the region. But big lesson, I thought that would go on for two decades. Uh, ten years after I left, it was back in total trouble again. Um, going back now to the Rockefeller Foundation, which will complete this sort of review of the, the career trajectory, um, I remember a conversation that you and I had uh, when you were ending up at Rockefeller, and I, I told you about a, um, another foundation where, and this is not uncommon actually, where a new president had come in, it actually happens all the time, and he fired all the senior staff on showing up. Mm -hmm. And I said to you, what do you think of that strategy? And you said, and I remember this so vividly, you said, I think that's a mistake. You said, your program directors are the eyes and ears of the foundation in the circles that it moves. And if I remember this correctly, and correct me if I don't, uh, what you said to me was, um, my approach was to come in to, uh, I think you said you spent a good deal of the first years really being clear with the board about roles and responsibilities. Uh, and then um, to develop your agenda, to explain it to the program directors, and then to, um, then to uh, go around the, um, and then to sort of go around the um, circle after a year or so and see who was really on board with the new agenda. Am I remembering that correctly? You are many, yeah. amazingly accurately. Yeah. I use different metaphors. Uh, it's very interesting, Michael. You, I've noticed this several times. You, you have a good memory, and you don't just you don't just remember things. You internalize them. You take them on board somehow. So you've got the relationship, the meaning, and the direction of of, of the thought exactly as it happened. And sometimes you just hang your own words on it mm -hmm. rather than the actual words. 
I probably said the way I used to communicate that was I became convinced that the important piece of machinery was what I call the engines, which is what the grantees are doing. And so the last thing I wanted to do upon arriving in a new institution was cut the wires that formed the nervous system that connected me with the important part, which is the engine. So I really got, I didn't get to that till a year and a half down the road, and then I restaffed a lot of the place. Um, but I restaffed it, as you said, around an agenda that the board had become familiar with, and where we'd begun to move the field, we were supporting. Uh, actually a little bit before we moved all the staff. I never had a Friday night massacre. So when you look There are back, times you got to do that. Every job is different. Absolutely. When, when you look back at the, the Rockefeller Foundation tenure, um, what are the three to five things that you feel best about that you uh, accomplished there? One of them is the community development movement that we talked a little about earlier that really on scale really helped transform America's central cities. Uh, a second one, which is, doesn't ring such a bell in people's minds because it's not a field we follow very much in which we know what success and failure are. But we really put a lot of effort and actually had some good results in terms of really expanding and humanizing and making an acceptable, accepted part of health family planning around the world. You talked about the Green Revolution, which everybody knows, which Rockefeller did long before I came there. But another thing Rockefeller did was a lot of work on family planning and then redesigning it after the first round, which was male-designed and pretty crude, redesigning so it was really a women's health program. And uh, you look at what's happened to family size in the developing world and the spread of quality family planning, and it's quite impressive. It strikes you and me as a problem that we're going to have 9 billion people in the world. Believe me, we were on a road to have 12. Um, we did one of the first programs, Michael, which I'm embarrassed to say Mike's successor took out of cultural program that helped the Christian and Muslim worlds relate to each other. Mm. That was really mm. pretty adventurous at the time. We had a lot of, mm. a lot of fun with that. Mm. So those are some of the examples. So I remember you're telling me that, that you have a practice, and I wonder if you continue it now, that every, I don't know what it was, three years, five years, some or two or three years, you take on a new subject to study. And at the time you told me this, you said you study it for two years or three years, and then when you feel like you've done enough, you, as a reward to yourself, you take a Nobel Prize winner to lunch mm. or dinner. Uh, is that still true? You're right. I do do that from time to time, and you're catching me at a wonderful moment, November 2013, when I'm just wondering what my next topic's going to be, because I haven't done it since... I left environmental defense. I've spent so much time figuring out what my... So give me a list behavior. of five things that you've done that with. Well, one I want to go back to... Oh, five things I've done. One is, one is the, uh, the wiring of the brain, mm -hmm. which has moved on since yeah. I studied it. One time I just started with the word magma. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a very useful way to think of the earth is of five reservoirs that interchange, molecules flow from one to the other, but the one we know the least about is magma, the five reservoir of water, uh, the atmosphere, the crust, the mantle, and the core. Uh, 
Now, the core is really two, but let's not go there for today. I just started with the word magma. What is it? How does it flow? How does it appear in our world, as in volcanoes? How does a molecule get from the magma to something that looks far away, like the upper edge of the atmosphere, 10 miles up? Um, I did tropical forests once, and that's... So neuroscience, magma, tropical forests. Mm -hmm. Two more. I'm not remembering another one now, but All I know right. I've done some others. Um, but those are examples. I did immunology once. You did immunology. I did immunology, but that also, <laughs> that was an early one. And, and So November 2013, you're thinking about what your next one will I'm be. I'm going to have to decide it. I said I'm going to decide it in December. I'm still casting around. Peter Goldmark, thank you for being with us at the New School. You've made it fun, and I felt as I've been with a partner, not a questioner. Well, it's an honor and a joy to be your friend and to be a partner in this conversation. And I want us to recognize Ken, who helped produce and record all this, because anybody listening to this is going to have difficulty wondering, who's the third person who made this all work? His name is Ken, Ken Adams. Sound engineer, colleague, uh, and my best critic in, uh, in how we do these things. So. Good. You've been listening to a conversation with Peter C. Goldmark and Michael Lerner at the New School at Commonweal. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. Thank you for joining us.